Welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm Patrick, the co-founder and CEO of Sano Genetics. And in this episode, we're going to go into a handful of interesting news stories over the past couple weeks, um, including the largest ever study conducted on the relationship between genetics and same-sex sexual behaviors, a story in the New York Times about a woman with a rare disease who's on life-saving treatment in the U.S. but may be deported, uh, recent news from the Food and Drug Administration around tightening restrictions on pharmacogenomic tests. So these are tests that predict how people respond differently to different treatments based on their genetics. And then finally, a new epigenetic signature associated with Alzheimer's disease. All right, shall we get started? So on the 29th of August, the largest study to date on the genetic basis of sexuality was published in Science. The story was based on a massive 500,000 genomes and has revealed five spots on the human genome that are linked to same-sex sexual behavior. These findings shore up the results of earlier similar studies and confirm the suspicions of many scientists. While sexual preferences have a genetic component, no single gene has a large effect on sexual behaviors. So, Patrick, what's your take on this study? So this study was definitely the largest of its kind at 500,000 people. Um, it's, it's much larger than any past studies on this particular trait. And, and the reason why this is important is because with genome-wide association studies, especially on something as complex as sexual behavior, uh, you have to have a lot of people to really understand the behavior. So this study estimated that the genetic basis of non-heterosexual sex, as they call it, was somewhere between 8 and 25%. So they used a couple of different data sets to make these estimates. And the reason this is an important finding is because it says that even if you had the best predictor in the world, you wouldn't really be able to predict something like this based on genetics alone. So it certainly pokes a lot of holes in, in the idea that there is you know, a, a gay gene, as many of the news articles have called it. Um, the authors also try to create a score, a polygenic score, using basically all of the genetic markers in the genome. And they were only able to predict about 1% of the variance between the participants in the study. So what it, what it basically says is that there is a genetic basis of this trait, but we're very far from being able to predict it. And we also really don't understand the biology underlying non-heterosexual sex. So um, the, to, to kind of zoom out a little bit, there was a lot of discussion online of, of even whether a study like this should be done in the first place. One side of the argument being that it's a, it's a fundamental human trait and part of science is understanding more about what we are as a species. But other sides of the argument would say that if such a score is developed, it could be used in parts of the world where uh, homosexuality isn't as tolerated as it is in, in some parts of the world. So the, the very idea that you could construct a score to predict it might lead to um, bad outcomes like people trying to select embryos or discriminating against people. So I think needless to say, there's no simple answer to, to these kind of questions. Everyone has has a different opinion on, on what way the science should be done. In this case, the, the authors did do a lot of work with the LGBTQ community to think about how, how to run the study and also how to communicate the results to people. So, so in reading the paper, it, it did seem like they took a lot of care to, to make it clear that the, uh, that the results were, you know, were limited and, and were in no way kind of, you know, case closed in terms of how this, how this particular human trait arises. So this study uh, was conducted on 500,000 genomes. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about the source of these genomes. 
Yeah, so the majority of them came from the UK Biobank, which is a, a, a large um, publicly funded project in the UK that's contributed to a huge number of research projects. And they also, there were also quite a few that came from the consumer genetics company 23andMe. So participants who filled out survey questions on 23andMe's website. This was another source of, um, of kind of I guess, controversy around the science underlying the study because these two groups of people were actually so different. The 23andMe customers tend to be younger um, and are also predominantly from the United States. The UK Biobank participants are between 40 and 70 years of age, and a number of them actually were growing up in times where homosexuality was criminalized in the UK. So there's a lot of potential confounding factors to the study that g certainly genetics alone would never predict this kind of behavior, especially if you're growing up in a place where um, homosexuality is criminalized, for example. So there were, there were parts of the paper where they tried to correlate uh, non-heterosexual sex with, um, with other kinds of behaviors like risk-taking, but a lot of people took issue with with this style of analysis because there was a potential confounding with the environment that people were growing up in. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, I think it's, it's really chapter one of probably what, what will continue to be more studies into, into this fundamental human behavior. So Patrick, if only a small part of, uh, being homosexual is genetic, then what are the other points at play here and how do they map out? Yeah. So, so it's a great question. I think, you can look at any trait and try to estimate how genetic it is or, or what fraction of the variance is explained by genetics. And, and it's a tricky question to ask sometimes because the role that genetics plays is in the context of, of any environment. So to, to take a separate example, if you look at, we know that genetics influences how likely someone is to, to become an alcoholic, for example. But if you live in a country where alcohol is banned, then the genetic basis of alcoholism will be completely different if you live in a country where alcohol is freely available. Um, and, and I think we can probably draw some of the same comparisons with homosexuality, for example, that there's a, a complex interaction between some genetic predisposition, but also based on all of the studies to date, a, a much larger fraction that's cultural or some you know somehow related to the environment but i think that the truth is we we just don't understand really what uh, what are the main underpinnings so score they made in the study only captured about one and only had one percent predictive power so there's you know there's basically there's there's no you know there, there's no way on earth that the score could be used to predict you know whether someone's likely to be homosexual and i think i also maybe should should note that the study, the study was based primarily on the question of have you ever had a non a non same sex sexual partner. So it wasn't even about are you homosexual or not. It was have you had a non non heterosexual partner. And and they did some analysis where they looked at differences between people who had only non heterosexual partners. So they would have said they had zero heterosexual partners in some number of of non-heterosexual partners but um, so they do sort of treat it as a continuous thing which you're not just heterosexual or homosexual so um, a lot of the criticism of the study as well was around what is the right trait or questions you know it's such a complicated thing you can't boil it down to a single question are you you know are you heterosexual or homosexual so I think 
part of the study is even, you know, what what are we trying to predict from genetics? And we're and we're very far from being able to certainly to construct any score or to find a single. There is it seems unequivocal that there's no single gene or SNP that has any large effect on you know, whether you're likely to be homosexual or not. So the second story of, of last week was the shocking story that sick migrants undergoing life-changing care can now be deported. Um, and this was from the New York Times. Um, and the story said that without any public announcement, the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services have eliminated a deferred action program this month that has allowed immigrants to avoid deportation while their relatives were undergoing life-saving medical treatment. This story talks about the life of Maria Isabel Bueso and how she feels this change in policy is essentially a death sentence. The policy change is the latest in a series of moves by the Trump administration to revoke or modify procedures that have allowed certain immigrants to remain in the United States on humanitarian grounds. So my first question is, what's your take on this story, Patrick? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's it's a terrible story and good good job on the new york times from covering it and bringing it up and i mean i i think maybe we could just start by reading a couple sentences from the intro so so they say maria isabel bueso was seven years old when she came to the united states from guatemala at the invitation of doctors who were conducting a clinical trial for the treatment of her rare disfiguring genetic disease the trial was short on participants and thanks to her enrollment it eventually led the food and drug administration to approve the medication for the condition that has increased survival by more than a decade so i think the, the first paragraph alone makes it quite clear that that this woman is a is a hero to science right she's she's not just suffering from a rare condition but moved moved from guatemala to the us to participate in this trial that's now results in a life-changing treatment and she's stayed in the u.s um so so they've continued to um, grant her leave to stay for to continue her life-saving treatment at, at ucsf so the the article makes a point that if she's deported to Guata, back to guatemala then she'll she'll not have access to this life-saving care anymore and and it almost certainly they, they call it a death sentence in the article so i think it's it's hard to understate how how inhumane this story is. And I think it, un- it underscores in rare disease more generally how challenging it is to, there are challenges throughout. To even run a clinical trial, you have to have people from all over the world that will often uproot their lives or travel to a site in the United States or somewhere in Europe to take part. And so then to make this sacrifice, to, to, to be part of this, uh, you know, this life-saving treatment and then be told you you know you have to you you have potential to be deported is just yeah I can't I can't see I can't see any uh, any sense in the whole thing and I know there's been a lot of um, backlash from the medical community and from the scientific community to say that you know there's this is not the right way to to treat people who have rare conditions but but I think it will remain to be seen what what happens and and also for for people who don't have stories in the New York Times you know what does it mean for all the other uh, people that are in the U.S. that are on life-saving care that, that might be sent back home. And so what loss will America face because of this new change in policy? How will it affect clinical trials going forward? Yeah, so I, I, it's hard to say. I mean, I think so many of the clinical trials are run in the U.S. that, that they must 
keep a way for people that have rare conditions to travel there for treatments. I think the biggest the biggest impact seems like it's going to be on the families of the people who have the disorders and the people with the disorders themselves because the you know the clinical trial is off is is just the first step in the process. If if everything goes well and it actually works, then in most cases you need to continue to stay on the treatment. So I think you know I I just can't see I can't see why this is good for anyone. It's it seems like a you know, it, it just seems like an inhumane way to treat people. And who else does this change in policy affect? Yeah, so, so this is not just, um, you know, this is not just going to affect people like Maria. There's also uh, children being treated for sickle cell anemia, cancer, pediatric cancers, and, and also adults that are being treated for, for rare disease. So, you know, it's, uh, I, I hope and I suspect that people will continue to follow the story in the coming weeks and, and hopefully public pressure, pressure from healthcare system and scientists will, will make them rethink this policy. So the next story is around the FDA getting stricter on pharmacogenomic tests. So Patrick, I wondered if you could start us off by telling me what is a pharmacogenomic test and why is the FDA changing their regulations? Yeah, so a pharmacogenomic test is, so, so the field of pharmacogenomics is the study of how um, individuals metabolize or process pharmaceuticals differently depending on their different genetic makeups. So there are there are a lot of examples actually in, in of commonly taken drugs. One of the most famous one is warfarin, which is a blood thinner, and people that have specific genetic backgrounds may respond to the treatment very differently and, and require different dosing or, or not have to take drugs at all or not be able to take those drugs for safety reasons. Um, so there, there are a huge number of private companies that offer pharmacogenomic tests. And from all the news coverage, it seems like the FDA sees a problem in that there are a number of these clinical labs that are doing a very good job and sending back the right information to people, telling them what, you know, what is the gene that they have, if any, and how might it affect medication they're taking. But there's probably a much larger number that are not doing a very good job communicating it to people. So what the FDA has said is that labs without specific um, approval from the FDA can no longer mention the names of specific drugs in their report. So they couldn't say you have this genetic variant, so you should change your dosage of this particular drug you're on. And I, and I think for for good reason because if that's done poorly then then someone might change you know if if the interpretation is not correct or if they've oversold what the genetic change is going to be then then someone might change their drug regimen without consulting their doctor but but I know there's also some concern on the other side that if if there is a genuine gene drug interaction that you want to be able to accurately communicate that to someone and, and tell them. So I, so I suspect what will happen is that the labs that are doing this really seriously will seek FDA approval. Um, and they've taken, I know they've taken actions against a couple of other labs that, that weren't doing such a good job to force them to stop giving these tests out. So these new regulations, do they uh, support people who get poor results and allow them to, to press charges against the people who are providing those results? So I, I don't know that it will, it, it may lead to people pressing charges. One of the criticisms that I've seen of the action is it could actually, so, so they say that people have to stop mentioning specific drugs 
but companies could still go on to produce these reports and just say, here's the, here's the genetic variant that you have. It affects the way you metabolize drugs. G- good luck. And, and not mention which drugs. So I think some people have said actually it could, it could that, you know, it could have an opposite and poor effect where then people are doing their own Googling and asking is, you know, is the drug that I'm on affected by this pharmacogene that I carry? Whereas if the report had just said these are the drugs that it affects in the first place, then you know, then then they wouldn't have to, you know, potentially go and find this information themselves and and be misled in some way. I, I mean, I think from my perspective, this is a complicated enough field, and and actually a, a large number of people. So so in the article they say about ninety percent of people that have a pharmacogenetic test will have some kind of actionable findings. So it's a huge number of people that having a genetic counselor or a clinical geneticist explain the results makes sense and, and um, you know, not not requiring people to do a lot of research on their own um, and, and, you know, risk potential misdiagnosis or change in behavior that could be unsafe. And so what will be the effect of these new regulations on researchers? So I imagine it shouldn't have a huge effect on research. It's it's mainly directed at um, private companies that are selling genetic tests. Um, it it may have an impact on researchers that work with these companies if they're using data. But but I think for the vast majority of research in this area, it's being done as a part of clinical trials. So doing genetic testing alongside clinical trials or um, in in academic or industry labs where they're genome sequencing participants and, and, and looking at cells or looking at um, the metabolic activity of the individual themselves to see how they process the drug. So hopefully it shouldn't have a huge impact on research, but it will have an impact on, on how that research gets translated out to individuals and out to labs. So our final story is um, around new, new epigenetic signatures which have been linked to Alzheimer's. So Alzheimer's disease is a progressive neurodegenerative disorder and the most common untreatable form of dementia. A study published at the end of August has discussed a new model and strategy to study the epigenetic alterations underlying Alzheimer's onset and progression. So the first question I have is, what are the epigenetic alterations and how do they help people with Alzheimer's disease? Okay, so maybe the best place to start would be what is what actually is epigenetics. So, so genetics is the study of our DNA sequence and, and how it affects traits. Epigenetics is the study of modifications to our DNA that don't actually change the DNA sequence itself, but change the gene activity or the way the sequence is read in some way. So, so one example of epigenetics is something called methylation. So methylation is a is a mark, um, a chemical modification that is put on top of DNA, um, and that's the focus of this study. So it doesn't change the letter itself. So you have you still have a C at that position, but some people have the C with the additional methylation modification to it, whereas other people have a C without the modification. So the reason why there's such an interest in epigenetics and Alzheimer's specifically is because we know that genetics can predict greater risk of Alzheimer's disease, but but your genetics doesn't change over time, so it doesn't tell you whether you're likely to have it in the near future. Um, people that have one of the common risk factors for Alzheimer's, a, a gene variant called ApoE4, 
are at a much higher risk of developing the disease, but there's really no telling whether you're likely to develop it or not. So, so the goal with this study and, and with many other studies like it is to develop something called a biomarker. So what a biomarker does is basically, if it's working, it's a readout that tells you if you're getting closer to having the disease or not. Um, and so because the epigenome is changing all the time, the DNA stays fixed, but the modifications to it can change, then what happens in, in some disorders like cancer, for example, is the epigenome undergoes a very large change. One of the challenges is we don't always know whether the epigenome change is causing the disease or whether the disease is causing the epigenome change. It's It, it can be kind of circular, but... In either case, if you know that seeing this pattern means that people are much more likely to have Alzheimer's in the future or already have Alzheimer's, then it can be a really useful test to say, for example, if you have one of these genetic risk factors, you can start to get tested at a certain age to see if the epigenetic biomarker is showing up. So what this study did is it looked at, it actually first took samples from a small number of people that had Alzheimer's disease turned them into um, stem cell models, and then built a, uh, a an epigenetic signature to try to discriminate different kinds of Alzheimer's disease and, and discriminate that from healthy people. Then they took this, uh, this signature that they found, and they applied the same thing into uh, a large publicly available source of Alzheimer's disease patient data to validate that is the score that they, uh, or the signature that they found in the cell model, does it also match with um, with data from real people who, who have the disease? And they found that um, they were able to construct a score that, that was correlated with Alzheimer's disease onset. And so how does this new model work better than the old one? So I think it's, it's a little bit hard to say with research like this, it always takes a few years to understand whether other groups can replicate it and do the same thing and, and, and what kind of impact it does have. But in, in Alzheimer's in general, there, there's a lot of research to suggest that spotting it early and early intervention should make a big difference in terms of prevention or treatment, that, that the later it's, um, it's detected, the more challenging it, it will be to, to reverse or to treat. So scores like this, and there are other kinds of methods that use imaging of the brain, for example, to actually see changes that are starting before there's a, there's a diagnosis of the disease. These kinds of early detection methods will hopefully allow us to understand more about the causes of the disease itself and also hopefully to to improve treatments because the earlier we can treat much the same way as cancer and, and most disorders the earlier you can detect it and treat it the more likely you are to to be successful and so what does this mean for patients who currently have alzheimer's or is it more for people who are going to be diagnosed with alzheimer's yeah, I, I think it's one of the challenges with Alzheimer's research is that there there are no great treatments or cures. So it's it's hard to say whether this kind of research will have an immediate impact on patients, but but hopefully it can fuel research that allows earlier detection and, and potentially better treatments down the line. So what would be the next phase of this research? Where will it go from here? So I think a lot of other research groups in the area will will be trying to replicate the result. So the first the first thing is to see, you know, is this a you know a fluke or something, you know, something unexpected that happened in the one lab that did it, or is it something that can be 
um, recapitulated over and over in other labs across the world. And, and if that is the case, then uh, people will start to build on top of it much in the same way that that the field of genetics has progressed, where first a study will find a risk, a genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's. Many other research groups or companies around the world can do the same. And today our, our understanding of the genetic risks are are much better than they were before. So I suspect the the field of epigenetics will follow much the same trajectory. Excellent. Well, that's all the news from the past couple of weeks. Um, thank you very much for joining me, Patrick. Great. Thanks for being here. Yeah. Thank you all for listening. And as always, please feel free to send us any feedback, including questions you have or guests you'd like to see on the show to podcast at sonogenetics.com. If you like the podcast, please feel free to share it with a friend or leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Then finally, feel free to check out our website, www.sonogenetics.com. If you're interested in reading more about some of these topics on our blog or checking out some of the research projects we're supporting right now. Thanks and see you next time.